Happy New Year. Good to be with you all this morning. It's a beautiful song and goes so well with what we will be looking at this morning. So I would like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15. I preached to you out of this magnificent chapter about a couple months ago now, and we, we cover verses 1 through 8 then. But this morning I want to pick up where we left off in verses 1 I'm sorry, verses 9 through 13. But I chose this text for this morning because I cannot think of a more appropriate text for New Year's Sunday. Whenever we begin a new year, we want to be recalibrated, don't we? We want to be refocused on what really matters. Perhaps do a little bit better in the year to come. Grow a little more be a little more fruitful than the year before. And I want to take you to this passage because that is not only what you should be desiring, but this passage also offers you the promise and the way for that to happen in your life this coming year. So, do you want to know and love Christ better and grow in Christian maturity in 20 23. Do you want to be recalibrated to what really matters in the coming year? Do you want 2023 to be a year characterized by fruitfulness in your life like you have never experienced before? You should. And this is just the text that your soul and my soul needs. But I think if we are honest, we all desire something even more than those things I just listed. More than anything, we want to be happy, don't we? We want to experience joy, true, lasting joy. Not the kind of trite, superficial joy that the world offers, but but true, deep lasting, abundant joy that can't be quenched by the waters of tragedy or persecution. Joy. And may I propose to you that that desire is not in conflict with the things that we mentioned above, like fruit and maturity and growth. In fact, it is the very capstone of what Jesus promises to you in this passage. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So do you want a life filled with joy? True gladness, satisfaction, happiness. The pathway to that is given to you In this text, joy is the promised byproduct of a life that is growing and mature in Christ. So do you want that for 2023? And I would like to invite you to turn and look with me at John 15 in the text this morning. To get us going this morning, I just want to briefly review some of the main points from last time. A disciple possesses a mutual indwelling relationship 
with Christ. A disciple abides in Christ, and Christ abides in the disciple. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. That's what it means and looks like to be a true disciple. We put it this way. A Christian is one who is in union with Christ, connected to the risen Christ such that all that belongs to Christ belongs to him. You're in union with Christ. But that's not all. A Christian is also one who lives out that union in a continual communion with Christ, continually drawing upon all that belongs to Christ as it now belongs to me. And Jesus gives us this picture of a vine and, and branches to make this, make this point. Just as a branch abides in a vine, so too disciples abide in Christ as they perseveringly depend on Christ, continually by faith sucking and sucking on all that Christ is for them. And just as the life-giving sap of the vine pulsates through all the branches connected to it, so Christ fills disciples with his life, nourishing, empowering, strengthening them. And because disciples are in union with Christ the vine, his mission of fruit-bearing becomes their mission as well. Christ has commissioned his disciples to go and be the means through which he bears his fruit in the world. And disciples bear that fruit as they persevere in this relationship with Christ. So that's the paradigm for the Christian life that Jesus is giving us. Union with Christ is your primary identity. Communion with Christ is your primary duty. And as that is true in your life, you will be able to bear fruit, which is your primary commission in your life. But now we come to verses 9 through 13. And these verses are here to describe further what this practice of abiding in Christ looks like. These verses are going to impact everything we learned in verses 1 through 8 about abiding in Christ, but from a different angle. And they will do this by examining it from the angle of love. If you want to understand the nature of the relationship you possess with Christ, you must understand it in terms of love. If you want to understand just what it means to abide in Christ and Christ in you, you must understand it in terms of love. If you want to understand your mission as branches, you must understand it in terms of love. If you want to look for fruit in your life or want to know what's at the core of any fruit you're going to bear as a Christian, you must understand it in terms of love. Our passage this morning is going to call us deeper into true communion with the risen Christ. And it will tell us that if you want to understand the nature of communion with Christ, you must understand it in terms of love. So in John 15, verses 9 through 13, Jesus is going to give us two lessons. Two lessons on the importance of love for a life of abiding in Christ. Two lessons on the importance of love for a life of abiding in Christ. The first lesson is found in verses 9 through 11. 
A life which abides in Christ must be understood in terms of a mutual relationship of love. So verses 1 to 4 told us that we possess a relationship of mutual indwelling with Christ. We abide in Him and He abides in us. But if we stop there, something very important would be missing. Something which is at the heart of any and all true communion with Christ. Love. A disciple not only abides in Christ and Christ in him, but he abides in Christ's love. And Christ's love abides in him. So in these verses, we're going to get the paradigm of the Christian life cast in terms of love. And this relationship of love begins with the breathtakingly supreme love of Christ. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. It's the breathtakingly supreme love of Christ. Jesus now zooms into the most profound and astonishing aspect of this relationship the love that Christ possesses for His own disciples. Jesus says that the love He has for His own is so great that it can only be compared to the love the Father has for Him. The Father's eternal, perfect, complete love for the Son is now revealed and experience through the love that Christ has for His own. So in order to grasp how astonishing a thing this is for Jesus to say here, let's look briefly at some passages in the Gospel of John that show us the love of the Father for for Christ. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son, has given all things into His hand. On 5.19 to 20, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son could do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Why? For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Or 10.17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. These verses tell us that the Father's love is the reason the Father appointed the Son to be His unique representative, accomplish all of His work in the world. The Father's love is in response to the absolute perfection and obedience of the Son. And this relationship stretches back to eternity past. Father, Jesus prays, I desire that they also whom you've given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, when Jesus says here in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, he's pointing to the totality of the love the Father has for his Son, a love that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. A love which is perfect, complete, overflowing, unhindered in every way. And Jesus says that that love which the Father has for Christ is the only suitable analogy for the love Christ has for His own. 
Just as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The point is not that Christ has loved his own in all the same ways or for all the same reasons that the Father has loved Christ. That's obviously not true. The point is that he has loved us with a similar intensity, to a similar degree, with the same kind of commitment that the Father has loved him. Christ tells us that the only suitable analogy which could accurately describe the degree of Christ's love for you is the love of the Father for the Son. And this love was demonstrated most clearly on the cross. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1 with me. John 13, 1. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved His own to the end. That means to the end of His life, to His very last breath. And it also means to the greatest degree. This statement is the lens that we are to look through to interpret everything else that's happening in the Gospel of John all the way up to the cross. No greater display of love was possible. And so when Jesus says in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, he means that as he goes to the cross to die for his people, he is displaying a love for them which is just as complete just as perfect, just as unhindered as is the Father's love for Him. My friends, that is astonishing. But if that were not enough, I think He means something even more here as well. The Father's love for Christ is not only the analogy of Christ's love for His own, It is also the overflowing source of Christ's love for his own. I think Jesus is saying that the love which disciples receive and experience from him is the overflow of the love which he received and experienced from the Father. Christ here means to draw attention all the way back up to the Father as the ultimate source, the ultimate spring. Any love we receive from Christ was actually first sourced in the Father's love for Christ. In other words, Christ's love is not merely the imitation of the Father's love. It is the very overflow of the Father's love to Him. The Father has so loved Christ that Christ loves His own with that same love He's received from the Father. Christ is the mediator, the channel, the conduit of the love He's received from the Father. My friends, this is the fountainhead of the Gospel. The eternal love of the Father for the Son. Yes, God so loved the world that He gave His his only Son, but this verse tells us that God so loved His Son that the Son came as the overflow of the Father's love as the mediator 
to channel that love to the world. That is the most fundamental reason why we have the gospel. It's owing to the eternal love within the triune God. Any love we experience in the gospel is the overflow of the infinite love between the Father and the Son. That's the ultimate explanation for why we have the gospel. So this is the breathtakingly supreme love of Christ. But before we move on, I I want to call us to examine if and how much we even think on this love in this way. Are you consistently blown away by the magnitude of Christ's love to you? Does it fill you with wonder? Take it for granted? Let's give it a nod. Of course he does. Has Christ's love for you become something trite and trivial? Or does it still reign in your heart with that kind of glory as something which can only be explained in terms of the love which existed in the Trinity? This verse is here to cause us to pause and consider it. You see, this is the starting point of abiding in Christ. You must know this. You must be continually gripped by the astonishing degree of Christ's love to you. This is where we are to return over and over again in the Christian life. We so easily doubt, belittle, forget, ignore the love of Christ for us. This passage is here to call us to remember the infinite love with which He loves you. A love which could not be any greater. A love which proved itself on the cross as He became a wrath-absorbing sacrifice so you could live. A love which is the very overflow of the Father's love to the Son. This is the first thing that must be known and continually called to mind in order to abide in Christ rightly. That's only the first step. In understanding the nature of this relationship disciples have with Christ, next, Jesus gives us the necessary response of abiding in Christ's love. Look at the end of verse 9. Go back to John 15. The end of verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Given the magnitude of Christ's love for us in the gospel, we as recipients of it are commanded by Christ to abide in his love. Abide means to continue or to remain. And the expression, my love, refers to the love Christ possesses for you, his own. So you, as a disciple who have been so loved by Christ, are commanded. It's your responsibility to ensure that you remain in Christ's love for you. 
Disciples who've been so supremely loved by Christ are to ensure a continual experience of Christ's love flowing to them. It's as if he said, remain in the stream of my love to you. The love of Christ to disciples is boundless and free. But the continual enjoyment of that love is, in some sense, conditional. D.A. Carson said it this way, the injunction to remain in Jesus' love presupposes that however much of God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. So disciples who have been so loved by Christ are to live in such a way that they remain in the conscious experience of Christ's love to them. But what does that mean? What does that look like? How are we to live such that we remain in his love? What does this duty of abiding in Christ's love look like practically? Well, it's answered for us plainly in verse 10, which gives us the means of abiding in Christ's love, which is obedience to Christ. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Disciples remain in the conscious experience of Christ's love, his delight, his favor toward them by obeying his commandments. Or to say it another way, Christ's ongoing love for his disciples and their ongoing experience of his love to them, is conditioned on their obedience to him. Now that is very interesting. That is not the answer I would have given. We don't normally talk that way. It makes us kind of uncomfortable. But Jesus says there is a sense in which our obedience of his commandments is the essential means of remaining in his love to us. So let me try to help you see how this, how this works out. It's actually something very similar to what Jesus taught back in chapter 14. So look back to chapter 14 with me. In verse 15, 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Look down at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him. Verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. So in all three of these instances, a believer expresses his love to Christ in the form of obedience to Christ's words. So that's the first thing to notice. This obedience to Christ is flowing from a heart that loves Christ. True love for Christ is always evidenced by a care for his words, a submission to his words. The second thing to notice is that in all three instances, Christ and the Father respond to a disciple's loving obedience with, in some sense, more love. 
You see that? And I think Jesus is saying the same thing here in John 15, 10. As the disciple expresses his love for Christ in the form of obedience, he will remain in the increasing enjoyment of Christ's love, his delight and favor toward him. In some sense, Christ responds with more love. And this is what disciples are commanded to ensure that they remain in. But if we stopped there, we would not have the entire picture that we need. Because we must remember that any love we possess toward Christ is always a response to his prior, initial love to us. In other words, this relationship of loving obedience to Christ, to which Christ responds with love, does not begin with our love. But it's rooted in his initial love for us. Verse 9, as the fathers loved me, so have I loved you. You know this verse, 1 John 4.19, we love. Why? Because he first loved. Us. This kind of love for Christ is simply a response to his love for us first. It is the evidence that I have truly experienced his free and abundant love to me first. Oh, how important it is to get this order correct. So in these verses, John is giving us a picture of the Christian life. It begins most fundamentally with the free, infinite love of Christ to us, what we saw in John 15, 9. And those who've experienced that love always respond with love to Christ, 1 John 4, 19. And the way such love expresses itself is in a life of obedience, chapter 14, verse 15. And as believers live in this way, they experience the continual flow of Christ's love to them, his delight, his continued pleasure in them. So this is a picture of a growing and maturing relationship of mutual love between Christ and the believer. Now let me give you a clarification before we move on. This is not the earning of God's love in the form of salvation. Just note, this kind of love is impossible until you have first experienced His free, infinite love in salvation, right? This is not a formula for how to get into a loving relationship with God. This is a picture of what it looks like for those who have already entered into a relationship with God through Christ which began not with your love, but by faith receiving his love to you. This also doesn't mean that we begin the Christian life by love received through grace, and then we continue in the Christian life by love received through works. There's a sense in which God's love to you is never lost. God's love for his children is based on their union with Christ and their identification with him. Their standing doesn't go up and down. But there is another sense in which God's love is experientially maintained through obedience. 
Yes, it's true, he couldn't love you any more than he has, supremely demonstrated at the cross. Nevertheless, there's also a sense in which you are in a relationship of maturing love with him. And as you live a life which responds to his great love for you with affectionate obedience, then Christ responds to you with affectionate delight. And that's the sense in which our passages speaking. Now, if you're still unsure, look at how Jesus explains this with a comparison of his own relationship with the Father. We get the model for abiding in Christ's love. Is Christ's obedience to the Father? Look at the rest of verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Christ's obedience to the Father is a major theme throughout the Gospel of of John. Let me show you a few instances. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 6.38, I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. In 8.29, he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Where did this obedience come from? John 14.31 came from Christ's great love for the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world might know that I love the Father. And Jesus says here that as he obeyed the Father in this way, he remained in the constant experience of the Father's love and affectionate delight in him. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This charge I've received from the Father. And this is the same pattern for disciples. D.A. Carson, again, put it this way. He said, if we are the recipients of Jesus' love in a way analogous to his own reception of the Father's love, we must remain in Jesus' love by exactly the same means by which he has always remained in his Father's love. Obedience. That total obedience which finds Jesus testifying, the one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. In other words, a disciple's relationship with Christ is modeled after Christ's relationship with the Father. Look at how the chart here. Christ was so loved by the Father that he loved the Father in return by complete obedience in his earthly ministry to the point of the cross to which the Father responded with loving pleasure in Christ. And in the same way, disciples who've been so loved by Christ are to respond with love in return, expressed in complete obedience, to which Christ also responds with love and delight. So this is the meaning of the first lesson. A life which abides in Christ must be understood in terms of a mutual relationship of love. So let me give you a few quick implications that flow from this. First, let this become your paradigm for what it means to commune 
with Christ. It's not something that is uber-mystical or sensational or emotional merely. It's to so feed on Christ's great love for you that you are driven to love Him in return by obedience. And then it's to consciously know that Christ delights in you for that. But then you're reminded that all this is rooted in His initial love to you to begin with, and so the cycle begins again and grows deeper and deeper. So for some of you, the call is to go back and feed on the love of Christ. You've made the Christian life all about your work for Christ and have neglected the fuel, which is Christ's love for you. The Christian life has become burdensome, a joyless routine, not much love for Christ in it. You've forgotten where this relationship begins and how it's to be continually nourished. It doesn't begin with you. In yourself, you don't have the ability to love Christ. So stop trying to pump out love for Christ from the dry well of your own cold heart, but go to the cross. Look at His love for you, His low condescension, His suffering, His agony, all for you. Remember the infinite freeness of His love for you, which is not attracted by anything in you. And as you drink from that well, see if the waters of love for Christ don't begin to flow. This is where we begin the Christian life, and it's where we are to be continually nourished as well. But for others of you, the call is to stop treating the Christian life as a mere sensational experience. Communion with Christ is not evidenced by getting warm feelings or goosebumps when I'm doing my devotions. Communion with Christ looks like embracing the love of Christ to you by faith. And then responding to that by faith with loving obedience to Christ. Your obedience really matters. His commandments really matter. They're not optional. The continued experience of His love and delight in you is contingent upon it. The essential means to remaining in this relationship, this experience of mutual love. Number two. Do not let these verses fill you with despair as you are aware of failure and sins in your life. Who is Jesus talking to in these verses? His disciples, including Peter, who he knows are about to deny him and abandon him in just a few hours. The same is true of us, who are his disciples, and yet who still sin and fail him often. Jesus is not here laying down the condition of perfect obedience or else He'll reject you as His disciple. That's not what's going on. He's given the portrait of the kind of relationship that true disciples pursue and enjoy with their Lord. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 
My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Disciples are commanded not to sin. Nevertheless, we still do sin, don't we? I do. And when we do, we're directed back to the supreme initial love of Christ for us. Verse 2, He is the propitiation for our sins. When we sin, we respond with confession, 1 John 1.9, and fresh applications of the free love and atoning work of Christ for us. In other words, we go back to step one, right? And when we do that, guess what? We're right back on the pathway of true discipleship. Having just experienced such free love afresh, what do we desire to do? But to respond with loving obedience to Christ. So you see, you are always but one step away from the path of discipleship. And it begins here. So don't let these verses fill you with despair. There's much hope. You begin at the gospel daily. So let's return to our passage. Jesus now tells us that communion with him, as we've just described, this relationship of receiving and returning love, is the exclusive pathway to a joy-filled life. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Notice, it's full joy. Not the trite, empty, temporary joy the world offers you. Fullness of joy. True, complete, happiness, gladness, satisfaction, full joy. Notice also, it's not your joy. It's Christ's joy in you, overflowing out of you. And this is experienced as we live out verses 9 through 10. In other words, a life of joy, true happiness, comes not from living for ourselves and indulging in sin, as the world tells us, but from experiencing a relationship of love with our Maker and Lord. Joy is found in being the recipients of the love of the Trinity overflowing unto us and in responding with loving obedience to Christ and experiencing His love and delight. Joy. I referenced the life of Hudson Taylor the last time I preached, and I want to do it again here because of how well it illustrates this, this passage. In his autobiography, Hudson Taylor writes about a time shortly following his conversion. And this is what he says. The first joys of conversion passed away after a time and were succeeded by a period of painful deadness of soul with much conflict. But this also came to an end, leaving a deepened sense of personal weakness and dependence on the Lord as the only keeper as well as Savior of his people. Not many months after my conversion, having a leisure afternoon, I retired to my own chamber to spend it largely in communion with God. 
Well do I remember that occasion. How in the gladness of my heart I poured out my soul before God and again and again confessing my grateful love to Him who had done everything for me, who had saved me when I had given up all hope and even desire for salvation. I besought Him to give me some work to do for Him as an outlet for love and gratitude, some self-denying service, no matter what it might be, however trying or however trivial, something with which He would be pleased and that I might do for Him who had done so much for me. Well do I remember, as an unreserved consecration, I put myself, my life, my friends, my all upon the altar, the deep solemnity that came over my soul with the assurance that my offering was accepted. The presence of God became unutterably real and blessed. And though but a child under 16, anyone in here under 16? It's for you too. Though but a child under 16, I remember stretching myself on the ground and lying there silent before him with unspeakable awe and unspeakable joy. Hudson Taylor learned the secret of this passage, and he lived it out as well. So this is the first important lesson on the importance of love in a life that abides in Christ. It is a life that abides in Christ must be understood in terms of a mutual relationship of love. But now we come to verses 12 to 13, in which we get the next lesson. And it's that a life which abides in Christ must be understood in terms of obedience to the supreme law of love. In these verses, Jesus will show us what it practically looks like now to live out verses 9 through 11. In verse 10, disciples abide in Christ by keeping his commandments. But now, in verse 12, Jesus zooms in to explain that at the heart of all of his commandments is the commandment to love one another. This section begins and ends with an identification of Christ's central commandment as the commandment to love one another. So, look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Look down in verse 17. These things I command, so that you will love one another. In other words, the primary way a disciple expresses his love to Christ, to which Christ responds with love and delight, is by keeping his commandment to love one another. So let's look at these verses, verses 12 to 13 now, to understand just what Jesus means by this. We're first told that this love is to be directed primarily toward other disciples. Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. One another. This obviously doesn't mean that we do not show love to unbelievers. We do. We should. It just means that we who have experienced the love of Christ have been brought into community with others who have also been so loved by Christ. 
disciples who've been so loved by Christ are to love other disciples who have also been so loved by Christ. And so this, the church, is where your primary responsibility lies. The church is to be defined by the same love which created it. What a contradiction it would be for the church to have been created through Christ's infinite love and yet be empty of love toward one another. What hypocrisy, right? That's Jesus' point. The main application of this commandment is to be performed to those sitting right beside you this morning. Christ is directing your love primarily to other disciples in the body of Christ who've likewise experienced his love. The church is to be a community of Christ-like love. Which leads to the next point. This love is to be in imitation of Christ's infinite self-sacrificing love. Look at the rest of the verse. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just so that we wouldn't miss his point... In verse 13, he tells us how he's loved us, which we are called to imitate. Verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says that there's not a greater expression of love, a more spectacular, more vivid display of love than that a person should lay down his life in the place of his friends. Jesus says this is the way he has loved his disciples, you and me. The love he was about to show his disciples on the cross is a love for which there is no greater comparison. The supreme demonstration of Christ's love was his voluntary death, laying down his life in your place so that you would live. So that you wouldn't die. No greater expression was possible. And the point is that if he has loved you to this extent, then it becomes incumbent on us to love one another in the same way, by laying down our lives in death to self for one another, giving up that which is most precious for us for one another in the body of Christ. I wonder if John had these words of Christ in mind when he pin the words of 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Because Christ has loved us, disciples, supremely. Therefore, He commands His disciples who've experienced this love to imitate the same love toward one another in the form of humble, self-denying service for the well-being of one another. So let me try to apply this to you briefly. Number one, the love which Christ demands from his people is a practical, self-sacrificing love for the well-being of one another. I think we're often tempted to wrongly apply this commandment to only the big things in in life, like 
taking a bullet for another person, or moving my family to a hostile country, or giving a large sum of money to someone on the brink of destitution. But the problem is that these opportunities are actually quite rare, right? It's not a part of our everyday experience. But Jesus intends for us to keep this commandment not just sometimes, but as the regular pattern of our daily lives. It's not just what we do sometimes, it's what we are to do all the time. It's to define who we are, not just be something that we occasionally do. But when we apply this commandment only to the big things in life, we overlook all the small, practical ways all around us to love one another. And this is where we live, in the day-to-day small moments and opportunities. In other words, this kind of love is to work itself out in very practical ways in the body of Christ. Go back to 1 John 3, 16. The next verse, look what John says. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, very general, there's a need. Your brother has a need. And you have the ability to meet it. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? It's our passage. This love is to be shown in very practical ways. So don't belittle the small opportunities. Be on the lookout for all kinds of small and large practical ways to die to self-interest and to love one another. And I know that I am preaching largely to the, to the choir this morning. Many of you love like this. You're an example of this kind of love to me. I have been the beneficiary of your sacrificial love. So the call this morning is for us simply to abound more and more in it. Grow in this kind of love toward one another. Number two, be identifying what those things are which are hindering you from loving like this. What is it? Are you content with feelings or talk of love without practical action? Do you live by feelings, wanting to feel joy before you will obey, and if you don't feel it, you won't obey? Remember, in our passage, the joy follows the obedience, not the other way around. Do you set limits on your love? Do you only love when there is some benefit for for yourself? Are you on the active lookout for small, practical ways you can die to self-interest for the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think that's where I fail most often. Don't even try. Not even mindful of it. I'm not on the lookout. Is most of your time spent thinking about how others are loving or not loving you? rather than the other way around. So be identifying and repenting from those things hindering this kind of love to the body. Well, we're almost done. Finally, we are told that this love is to be the overflow of Christ's love to you. It's to be the overflow of Christ's love to you. And here, I just want to bring everything we've learned together. Just as Christ's love was the overflow of the Father's love for him, 
so also our love for one another is to be the overflow of the love we've received from him. In other words, we're not simply to imitate Christ's love from our own strength. We're to be so filled with the love of Christ that it overflows out of us onto those around us in the body of Christ. And when we do, we become the channels, the conduits, the mediators of the very same love of Christ for each other in the church. The triune love of God is poured out on us through Christ. And then the triune love of God is poured out through us onto one another. That's amazing. So that in the church, we experience the Trinitarian love of God here in our love for one another. And when you love like that, you will abide in Christ's love. That's what Jesus demands from his people. Loving one another, being the conduits of his love to one another is the primary way you express your love to Christ. And it's the primary way you abide in Christ's love. So what does that mean for us? It means the primary evidence that you've experienced Christ's love for you is that you love other disciples with Christ-like love. According to Jesus, the primary test that we love him is that we pour our lives out for one another. So using that commandment, that standard alone, how much do you love Jesus? How much do you love him? You see, we must not measure our love for Christ or our knowledge of his love merely by emotions we feel or facts we know. We must measure it by the level of Christ-like love flowing out from me to other disciples. In other words, when we do not love one another in this way, we must see that the core issue is not that I just don't love one another as I ought. It's that I do not love Christ as I ought. And I don't love Christ as I ought because I've either lost sight of his great love to me or I've never experienced it to begin with. This is where repentance must begin. So this text has given us two lessons on the importance of love and a life of abiding in Christ. It's taught us how we are to cultivate communion with Christ in the coming year. I pray that after this morning you will come to know what it truly means to experience communion with Christ. It's to experience a relationship of receiving and returning love to Him. Being so continually nourished by His free, infinite love to you in the Gospel that you return love to Him in the form of obedience, primarily by becoming a conduit of that love to one another. And as you do that, you remain in his love and the conscious enjoyment of his love and delight in you. And that is the pathway to true and lasting joy. So do you want to be filled with joy this coming year, my friends? You want to have a life abounding in fruit? You want to experience communion with Christ as you never have before? Then give yourself to living out John 15. 9-13. through 13. 
and give yourself to loving one another in the body like you never have before. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You, the source of all love and life in the Gospel. Thank You for Christ, the very mediator of Your love who has so loved us. Oh, that we would taste His love afresh. Be filled with His love. Love Him in return. By laying down our lives for one another. And experiencing Your gaze of favor and delight, we praise You. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Christ. Pray for the ministry of Your Spirit to apply this text to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, Amen.